Episode 44 The Joys of Heaven and the Pains of Hell Yesterday I read a meditation on the bodily resurrection at the Last Judgment. If you found that meditation to be helpful, I post more of that and other works in audio form on my Patreon, patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief, so please become a member to have access to more of those and also other theological and spiritual resources. But since we talked about the bodily resurrection and the judgment, it seemed like a good time to talk about heaven and hell. We already talked about death and judgment. Heaven and hell are the last two of the last four things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So first, just real quickly to talk about the bodily resurrection, why we expect our bodies to be resurrected. Well, first of all, even aside from the New Testament, where it's mentioned multiple times, and we'll go over those in a second, but even before all that, we recognize that God made us, not just as a soul, but as a body. And yes, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, our body dies. But does it seem fitting that our life in eternity will be without the second half of what makes us human? What God made us as in the beginning? Furthermore, Christ didn't redeem us by some invisible act. He came down into this world, into our human nature, took on a body, and redeemed us, body and soul. Didn't just redeem our soul and say that salvation is escape from our fallen body. That is a Gnostic idea. So God made us body and soul. He redeemed our body and soul while having our body and soul. And also Christ rose from the dead, body and soul. And he made a lot of efforts to emphasize to his disciples that he had a real resurrected body. Hey, check out my wounds. Touch them and see that it's me. I'm not a ghost. He ate with them on a number of occasions after he rose from the dead. The reason being that he wanted to show this is my body, really. So we have good reason to expect that our bodies will rise from the dead, not only just from the reasons we mentioned that we are made body and soul, but also and primarily because of Christ's own resurrection. But what are some other scriptural proofs that we are to expect the resurrection of the body? Well, first, something from the Old Testament in Job chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Here Job is very clear. He repeats that it's going to be in my flesh that I see him with my own bodily eyes. Moving now to the New Testament, we don't need to touch on the Gospels because we mentioned already Christ's resurrection, which is the strongest proof of the bodily resurrection that we can expect. But St. Paul, in a number of places, Romans 8, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So not just the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of our bodies, he mentions. Paul again in Philippians chapter 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So that's pretty clear. He's going to transform our body to be like his. There are others we could mention, but in the interest of time, uh, we'll leave it at that. The resurrection is attested to not just by our reason, but also by scripture. So we know that our souls are immortal, that there will be a judgment, and that our bodies will accompany our souls to our eternal lot. So let's look at the options here. Let's look at what the joys of heaven are. The primary one, the source of our beatitude, the source of our perfect fulfillment, our perfect happiness in heaven, 
is what's called the beatific vision, which is the vision of God that totally beatifies us, that totally fulfills us. And to use the words of uh, the definition by Pope Benedict XII, he says that, quote, we define that the souls of all the saints in heaven have seen and do see the divine essence by direct intuition and face to face, in such wise that nothing created intervenes as an object of vision, but the divine essence presents itself to their immediate gaze, unveiled, clearly and openly. Moreover, that in this vision they enjoy the divine essence, and that in virtue of this vision and this enjoyment, they are truly blessed and possess eternal life and eternal rest. So that might sound just overly theological and academic, but what it means is, while in this life we only have a vision of God, so to speak, through a darkened and cloudy way, through the virtue of faith, we don't see God directly. We can see him indirectly, in a sense, through his created things. We can know him indirectly by the teachings of Christ and his church. But in heaven, we will see God as he is. Not in some symbolic way, not through some intervening image or created thing, but we will behold God directly, by a direct gaze, as it said. Now, what that actually means is hard for us to understand, because to know God directly, who is infinite, and who is not made known by any visible means, like the rest of the things that we know, is hard for us to grasp. But to know that we will see the source of all things, that we will see the one who created the universe, the one who is eternal, the one who created all the stars and the vast immensity of space, the one who created all the wonders of nature, that we will behold him as he is, and never grow tired of such a vision because God is infinite, we will never comprehend him entirely in the sense that we will never know God fully. We will continually know him in a new way because he's infinite. Our intellects will never reach the depths of the richness of God's nature. So what that vision is like, as St. Paul says, uh, we've never conceived of it. It hasn't even dawned on us the glory to be expected in heaven. So that's the first and principal source of our beatitude. Were there nothing else involved in our beatitude, we would not even notice because that fulfills us perfectly. The infinite good that we long for our entire earthly life is finally possessed by us and we reach peace and rest. Now when we say rest, we don't mean that we're just kind of laying around or anything like that. Rest means that we're free from all pain, all trouble, all sorrow, all anxiety. That's why we call our joy in heaven rest. Now what other joys accompany this primary joy? Well, the secondary joy would be being able to know everything through God knowing all things that can be known. For example, all of the wonders of nature, all of the mysteries of nature that science couldn't uncover, all the things that we didn't understand, knowing more perfectly the mysteries of our faith, those things that we couldn't understand entirely and simply believed on earth. Additionally, we rejoice at seeing those whom we loved while in this life, being reunited with them in heaven with a joy that we cannot even fathom right now. Remember being reunited with loved ones here in this life. Any joy and any reunion that we have in this life is always somewhat tainted by the temporary nature of it, by the looming prospect of death, of losing that person eventually. So imagine the reunion with your loved ones in heaven when you will enjoy their company for all eternity with no sorrow or anxiety. In fact, that can be said with all of the joys of heaven, that any joy that we experience here below, our greatest memories, our greatest joys, they always have one problem with them, namely that they're temporary, that they fade, and that we know they will fade, and we will no longer possess those joys. They're too fleeting. Well, with the background of eternity, that one problem is removed. The joys that we feel in heaven are not fleeting. They are eternal. 
They give us perfect satisfaction. There's nothing looming on the horizon that endangers the joy that we possess there. Yet another aspect of our happiness and joy will involve the body. If we rise with glorified bodies, of course our bodies are going to partake in the joy of heaven. It's not merely a spiritual or intellectual fulfillment, it's also bodily. So in this sense, we could say that heaven is a place. It's not just some ethereal place of clouds. It is a place because our bodies, our corporeal real bodies will be there. From the words of the Old Testament, it's reasonable to believe that there will be sensible joys. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Recall that God made us originally in a garden with sensible delights. Why would we expect that in our fulfillment, the fulfillment of our lives in eternity will lack those things which pertain to the body? Now, of course, we need to purify our understanding of what this means, free it from any idea of crass bodily pleasure. But there will be sensible pleasure, sensible delights. The saints talked about this. Perhaps this week's member episode will be on that, on the words of the saints about the sensible delights of heaven. One more thing I want to mention about the joys of heaven before we move on is the communion of saints, the unity we will have in charity with all those other people in heaven, all of those other blessed in heaven. In particular, those saints to whom we had a particular devotion in this life, our patron saint, the saint who we identified with a lot in this life, a saint whose intercession we asked for, we will have a special kinship with those saints who are dear to us, and they will know us and we will be dear to them as well. Moving on now to the reality of hell, we won't spend as much time on this because our spiritual lives should be characterized more by a desire, a yearning for heaven, for union with God, rather than by a fear of hell and punishment. However, of course, there's something to be said for a healthy fear of hell that can spur us on to a conversion and give us a greater horror of sin. So just as the primary joy of heaven is our vision and union with God, our primary suffering in hell is our eternal separation from God. To quote the Catholic Encyclopedia, the pain damni, or pain of loss, consists in the loss of the beatific vision and in so complete a separation of all the powers of the soul from God that it cannot find in him even the least peace and rest. It is accompanied by the loss of all supernatural gifts, for example, the loss of faith. The characters impressed by the sacraments alone remain to the greater confusion of the bearer. The pain of loss is not the mere absence of superior bliss, but it is also a most intense positive pain. The utter void of the soul made for the enjoyment of infinite truth and infinite goodness causes the reprobate immeasurable anguish. Their consciousness that God, on whom they entirely depend, is their enemy forever, is overwhelming. Their consciousness of having by their own deliberate folly forfeited the highest blessings for transitory and delusive pleasures humiliates and depresses them beyond measure. The desire for happiness inherent in their very nature, wholly unsatisfied and no longer able to find any compensation for the loss of God in delusive pleasure, renders them utterly miserable. Moreover, they are well aware that God is infinitely happy, and hence their hatred and their impotent desire to injure Him fills them with extreme bitterness. And the same is true with regard to their hatred of all the friends of God who enjoy the bliss of heaven. So that obviously is a very dark picture of hell, and probably still doesn't do it justice. But just as there's a primary joy in heaven and also secondary joys, so in addition to this primary suffering of the pain of loss, there are also additional pains. For example, while in heaven there is the joy of the communion of saints, the union and charity that you have with all the other blessed, in hell there is utter isolation and hatred of all of your, quote, companions. There's also physical pain. Remember that our bodies participate in this and that Christ often describes hell as an unquenchable fire. That might not just be metaphor. 
physical pain is real. Just as our bodies participate in sensible joys in heaven, so our bodies also participate in sensible pains in hell. If you listen to yesterday's meditation on the resurrection of the body, keep in mind the dialogue between the body and the soul where they say, hey, you made me do this. No, you made me do this. Well, in reality, the body and the soul cooperate both in the good that they do and in the evil they do in this world. So it's fitting and just that they both participate in the suffering or in the joys of hell or heaven. Just as when we talked about the joys of heaven that they're no longer tainted by the prospect of losing joy, eternity gives the opposite effect in hell. In this life, when we think of our greatest sufferings, there's only one consolation in the midst of the worst suffering, and that is that it's going to end eventually, even if only in death. Well, when we're suffering in hell, there's not even that one comfort that we can expect the end of our suffering at any point. Eternity gives a greater intensity to suffering, an intensity that we can't even imagine because we've never experienced in this life a suffering that has no prospect of ending. Is this something that's intended to frighten us? I suppose a little bit, but that doesn't mean it's not real. You have a lot of criticisms of people nowadays, both religious and irreligious, Christian and non-Christian that say, well, this idea of hell, it was just invented to keep people in line and to control them through fear. Well, not exactly. That doesn't say anything about whether or not it's actually real. Just because it scares us doesn't mean it's something oppressive, doesn't mean it's something invented to control us. The charitable thing to do is to warn about a real danger. People tend to think we're being charitable by not preaching this harsh truth of the possibility of eternal damnation, whereas in fact it's the least charitable thing you can do. If someone's about to inflict some serious injury on themselves, we don't help them by saying, oh, don't worry, nothing will happen. The charitable thing to do, the loving thing to do, is to say, listen, you need to know about this so that you avoid this problem. Christ really did tell us that hell exists. We know that Christ's word is truth, so it doesn't do anyone any good. In fact, it does quite the opposite. It harms people gravely to pretend that hell doesn't exist or to pretend that no one goes there. Christ said the way to heaven is narrow and few they are who find it. The way to hell is wide and many there are who find it. Those are ominous words. So the reality of heaven and hell ought to be the subject of, of our prayer and meditation often, not because of fear primarily, though as I said, fear can spur us on to greater virtue and desire for holiness, but we ought to yearn and desire heaven above all things, not just because the alternative is so horrible, but because the, the joy of heaven is union with our maker, union with our redeemer. And that's a joy that we can't even describe or conceive in this world. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please give a five-star rating and a good review. And please share this podcast with your family and friends. God bless.